Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. Listen, when the police tell you to drop your weapon, just drop the damn weapon. Hello and welcome to True Crime Connections. I'm Tiffany, your host. This is a podcast where I talk with real people about some real shit. This week, I have Sin Kubiak. She is here to share her story about witnessing her husband being shot on her front lawn, but also trying to bring awareness to mental health. She's the author of Immune to Murder. Hi and welcome. Thank you, and happy to be here. Very happy to have you. Thank you. So do you want to take us down the journey? How did we get to immune to murder? I was married to my husband for 20 years who suffered from depression, stemming from abuse as a child by both of his parents, the father that beat him up and the mother that looked the other way. So both physical and emotional abuse. And um, he took out his pain by doing crazy things and almost living like he had a death wish, like just to get attention, I think. And I had the unique perspective of knowing him since I was six, six years old because, um, because my, our families were, knew each other. For that long time, I could watch him growing up and seeing what's happening to him. And even though I didn't know him or talk to him, I saw what was happening. And I ended up um, marrying him. (laughs) (laughs) Even with his problems, I mean, he went through good and bad spells. His dad said, straighten up, I'll pay for your college. So he did. And that was the time when he was straight, like, when we got together. And that was a good time for him. He was living without drugs and alcohol and doing very well. It was a roller coaster ride of the ups and downs of the good and the bad. And he was such a nice and kind person and generous to others. He wouldn't even squish a bug. He was so nice to everyone. And he gave out of his pocket to complete strangers, fix their cars for free. He was just such a great person, but when he was down, he shut out, shut himself off from the world, just turned dark, and not even I could get him to come out of it, even with um, surfing vacations, and I tried so many things to help him. You know, he tended to be a hoarder. Um, He had a lot of things, and it seemed like when he bought things, he was happy, but Eventually, you know, I realized these things are just temporary, just to make him that that day happy. The next week, he didn't even look at them anymore. And it's like, we're spending all this money on all these things and multiples of them. We ended up getting in a lot of debt, but I kept my mouth shut because I thought, okay, these things make him happy and I'm just trying to keep him happy. I mean, I saw his problems and I, I really wanted to help him. 
Shopping is a very quick fix because as soon as the next day comes around, it's not a shiny new object anymore. Mm -hmm. That's how he was. He would spend thousands of dollars on surfboards and skateboards. And, you know, it was really nice because some of those things he gave to other people. And um, he made skateboards for the kids in the neighborhood. And he was a really good skater. He saw the tricks the kids like to do and he tuned skateboards just for that and bought the perfect uh, accessories for them to to do that like give them a brand new skateboard and he got happy when he saw how happy those kids were and a lot of those kids their parents were meth heads patrick my husband he acted like kind of a father figure with some of these kids and um they really well, loved he him. didn't have that he didn't, yeah, so he was kind of, he didn't have that and um, purposely didn't want to have children because he did not want to take out for the cycle of abuse to go on because he had deep anger. And But with these other kids, he was so kind and generous, you would never know that he had a background of abuse. I just warmed my heart to see him do those things. I loved him so much because he, he was such a person that loved and people just didn't understand him because of his mental illness, because the darkness was so opposite of the light, and it confused people. A lot of times I had to speak for him and make up excuses. How long did this last for? Uh, like I said, a roller coaster ride for 20 years. Uh, we were married for 20 years. The good was the good, and the bad was the bad. There was really no moderation, nor in his behavior, I tried hard. I mean, I worked hard to keep us out of debt, but eventually that wasn't enough. But I didn't say anything, and then it got worse. And Yeah, what? how did he get killed by the police? What happened? What did he do? Well, that's a fast forward, but what he did was he was really drunk. He um, walked outside with bare feet and just shorts on with a vodka bottle in his left hand and a shotgun in his right hand in a cross position. And the shotgun was, um, he was holding the shotgun by the midsection and it was pointing up to the sky and he was standing there. Police were there. They did not, there was no intervention. Like, uh, how can we help you? And um, we know you've had a, a tough last couple of days and, um, you know, let's talk. None of that. And so, like I said, that's a fast forward, the things leading up to this, um, you okay. know, the book explains it in great detail, all the things that led up to this. But basically the guy that shot him had just been, I don't know, graduated or he was just um, given permission, I guess, to use his AR-15 gun. He just Passed the certification, I guess that's what it was, in January. And and this is in March when I guess he was so trigger happy he couldn't wait to use his gun. And so he uses it on my husband. And in a residential neighborhood, in 9 o'clock in the morning, on a Friday, people were around and they were awake. And one of my neighbors is holding her son in the, her backyard outside. And um, a bullet whizzed past her head lodges into um, her children's bedroom's mattress. The kids were, oh my God. Her, her other two children were playing inside that room. The other bullet they couldn't find. 
the cop fired four shots. The one of them fatally killed my husband. The other three, they found where the one went and the other two, they did not. The neighbor was standing there innocently and she was in her backyard holding her three-year-old. She could hear his, you know, commotion because all the cops said was, drop your weapon, drop your weapon. That's all the cops said before he's fired away. Right. He should have dropped the weapon. <laughs> yeah, so, but he dropped the vodka bottle. And when he dropped the vodka bottle, he was shot. He was still holding the shotgun the same way. I saw him spin around and then fall flat on his face, and I saw this big hole of gushing thick blood coming out of his side. He I'm was so sorry you saw that. He was laying there and um, trying hard to... I could see it was hard for him to breathe. His back was heaving up and down. And then I saw him lift up his face and mouth the words, I love you. And then his face went down on the ground. And then about 10 minutes after that, he died, I guess. They they took me away. The police roughly grabbed my arms and stuck me in a cop car. So I didn't see him. Well, they pronounced him dead maybe a half hour after all this, but... They just took me away, and I wasn't even allowed to to go to him. I was on my way toward him when they grabbed me. And the whole time, I was only standing about 20 feet away from him. But Right. Well, you can't touch that. That's a crime scene. I guess not. But I could have been shot, too. If that guy was so, you know, I don't. Yeah. Everything was so fast. It happened so quickly. And there's a YouTube uh, video, one of my neighbors, he couldn't see what was happening, but he uh, taped the the sound of it. My attorneys use that for timing purposes, I guess. But we had no visual. Nobody said they saw it except the cop and myself. So it's basically my word against his. And you know who wins in that case, right? The cops. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to be the winner in that one. Right. Because the cop says, oh, he was standing in a shooting position, which he was not. So it was so frustrating and infuriating that they just wanted to protect their own and not really care about me or anything. And and there was another twist to this story. My first husband was a cop in that same exact same station. He got um, promoted, recently promoted a sergeant and moved to a different precinct. His fr- buddies, all his friends worked at that station and he knew all of them. Um, he was bitter about our divorce and he told his friends all these things. And he stalked Patrick for a while at, when we first got married. He, and he told my daughter, once a druggie, always a druggie. I can't wait to arrest him. And Patrick's sister was a cop from in the sheriffs and the cops don't get along. She was actually a cop and my ex-husband was a sh- sheriff. So in the same county. So my um, sister-in-law made it stop by contacting their authorities. And so he stopped, but he was still bitter. And I think when I was taken to the police station after all this happened, they treated me really harshly in the way that I told them I had to use the restroom and ushered me to a jail cell. 
and watched me as I, <laughs> you know, I just, why can't I use the women's room? Oh, no, just come with me. I don't know if it was because I was who I was. Do they do this to everyone? Or is this the first time this ever happened? Because we lived in a beach town and not much goes on around there. They, the cops basically stop their cars by the cliffs and look at the surf. Not much goes down around there. Or the last thing that happened that was bad there was the Heaven's Gate uh, thing that happened. That was their last big thing that happened. You would think that they'd put you like an investigation room so they could question you about the night, not put you in jail. <laughs> Eventually. Oh, no, I wasn't in jail. I just used the jail for the restroom. And then I was in different uh, rooms until the detectives could come. So 10 o'clock in the morning, I was in the the first room where ba- babysat. I was basically babysat by people. And they were asking me questions and kind of just condescending, just not caring that my husband just died. Just, I don't know. Are these people human? It didn't seem like it. And I was crying my eyes out. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't answer hardly anything, except I got angry and said, all you care about is yourselves, and you just kill my husband for no reason, and when he's crying out for help and you just shoot him? What's wrong with you guys? All that kind of stuff. And they were tape recording me the whole time. When I got the audio from my attorneys, they cut out all of that stuff. They edited out all of my accusations, all of the negative things I said, all the things about my ex-husband being their friend. And they tampered with evidence, which is illegal. I had my attorneys ask a try to get an expert to find evidence of that. And the guy was just coming out of the hospital. He was sick. Or he had some surgery. And he said and he found nothing wrong. But I don't believe him because I know what I said. And I know when I said it in context with what they were saying. And I was edited. They replaced what I was saying with crying. And I know they edited that recording because I was in there from 10 o'clock in the morning until 4 p.m. Why is it? all that time I was being recorded, that they only presented two hours of recording. Why is that? And I know I was being recorded. I saw that red light on the whole time. Yeah, two hours got lost. <laughs> That's more bullshit. than that. Two hours I was, I, they presented as evidence, but all the rest of those hours are gone. Where were they? I know I was being recorded. I watched that light. Right. No, that's a lot of hours missing. Mm-hmm. And those are the hours either I wasn't saying anything, crying, or accusing them of being assholes. <laughs> Sorry, I, I still yeah, have anger. Yeah. I wrote the book because justice was not done, and this was all wrong. And I felt like Patrick deserved better than that because he was a good person just crying out for help. And they did everything the wrong way. And so I was asking, you know, be better trained in dealing with mentally ill people. Don't just shoot them. And for others around them, pay attention to people who suffer and don't. It's almost like sometimes mental illness is treated as a as a curse or a disease and people don't want to they want to ignore it or don't deal with it. But when people ignore it, it gets worse. All you have to do is act like you care and be there. No, I totally agree. Like, 
Definitely nobody deserves to get shot. The police department definitely needs more training on how to deal with about people is with mental rich health. Jewelry and their big car, nice cars and their Porsches. They just and their social status that they didn't want people to think something was wrong with them. So they hid their things under the rug about the child who suffers. I don't want to talk bad about them. I really don't. I, I don't mean to. I love them, but they just didn't do the right things. Right. Every Monday, join us at It's an Inside Job, your essential podcast for resilience and well-being. Dive deep into the art and science of transforming life's challenges into stepping stones. Learn from personal narratives and expert insights, building your inner strengths from the ground up. Discover that mastering well-being and navigating life's hurdles is indeed an inside job. So tune in, grow, transform. Together, let's make every Monday a milestone in our journey of empowerment. So subscribe to It's an Inside Job, where your path to resilience begins. Hey, Murderitas. I'm Danica. And I'm Sam. We are the mother-daughter hosts of Murder and Mimosas. A true crime podcast that strives to focus on lesser-known cases. We personally think these episodes go down a little bit better with a mimosa. So grab yours and get ready because every Saturday at brunch time is a new episode. You can listen to us on any podcast platform. I mean, you have to put yourself in that cop's shoes. Here's a man with a gun and a bottle of liquor. Right. And you say, drop it, and he drops the liquor. Yes. So. How do you know he's not going to use that other hand to shoot at you? So right. it's it's just a bad situation all around. Yes. Unfortunately. Right. That so this was not a cut and dry case, you know, that if so like I said, my word against his and I didn't think that was going to end very well. Right. So I yes, I understand cop- that he was scared but he just he didn't, they didn't talk him down first. They didn't ask how they could help him. They didn't give him that sort of thing that, well, at least I see that on TV. They say, Hey, you know, you don't have to do this or none of that. Right. I mean, they told him to drop it twice. He didn't drop it to them. That means you're willing to use it. Perhaps, you know, they want to go home at the end of the night too. So, Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a very bad situation to be in all the way around. Nobody wins here. Nobody. No. no and I'm so bad. sorry you had to witness that. That's horrible. It was horrible. I guess we're, from my standpoint, I knew him and I knew he wasn't going to shoot anybody. He wouldn't, like I said, wouldn't squish a bug. But that guy right. didn't know him. He didn't right. know him and he didn't find, he didn't stop to find out from his partner who was interviewing my neighbor, who was one of Patrick's best friends, telling him that he was suffering from mental illness and he had just, I have to back up. So um, it was because I had an affair and he caught me. Uh, It was about a week before that. That triggered this, but 
his drinking. Yeah, well, he was drinking anyway, but more drinking. And so I was at my friend's house when he kicked me out. And two days before this happened, we had reconciled. And he said, I'm so, I'm sorry I ignored you. It's my fault. And so we, you know, we reconciled and we were together again. But then that morning he walks down stairs like this and just goes outside like this. So I thought everything was okay because we made up and everything. And so anyway, my neighbor knew all this, was telling the cop, the partner. And if the guy who was running up to the battlefield would have stopped to, to talk to his partner to get an assessment, things might have turned out differently. So basically he did not follow his the protocol, what you're supposed to do. So the first cop on the scene went to talk to the neighbor first and not your husband? My husband was still in the house. My neighbor was outside. He saw the, the first cop that arrived on the scene. He went and talked to that, which was the guy's partner. And the, this, the um, guy who shot him ran up right after that. And he said he was okay. putting eyes on the scene. That was, I put some of the deposition, the pertinent parts of the dep- deposition inside my book. And just by reading what he said, you could tell you could tell he's lying. And he said, oh, I had to put eyes on the scene. And then my twin said, why didn't you stop to talk to your partner? And um, why, why didn't you um, look at the report of what happened a week before? He just evaded all those questions. And he just kept saying, I had to put, I put eyes on the scene. What does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> His own assessment of what was happening, I guess. But he was supposed to from what my sister-in-law says he's there you're supposed to talk you're supposed to get a report you're supposed to talk to your sergeant you're supposed to talk to your your partner before you do these kind of these rash decisions make these rash decisions you don't do them on your own but he did so well I I mean, you don't really have time to do all that if you're face-to-face with somebody with a gun. Like, hey, excuse me, can I talk to my sergeant first, please? (laughs) But he ran up without talking. My my husband wasn't even outside yet when he ran up. We saw him. Then why was he running up if your husband wasn't even outside? He was, we were in, we could see him running past the house. Like, running like a soldier in combat, I swear. We were just like, what is that guy doing? And then... And then Pat, that Patrick walks out the house after that. So then why were they coming to your house? I am so confused. <laughs> I, well, I don't know. I don't know. I think these ha- things happen. It's happened so quickly. I can't so say what they did. I don't you guys know were, why. You guys were inside minding your own business and cops just ran up on your house. Well, not really. It's because, okay, so I have to back up again. When he came downstairs with a shotgun, I was just in the kitchen all, like, happy making tea. I thought everything was okay and nice and happy. And then I see him walk down the stairs with a shotgun, and then I pick up, I freak out. I go, what are you, you know, I immediately call nine. And then he says, if you call 911, I'm going to do it. And so I had dialed 911, dropped the phone or hung up the phone, and they were at my house within five minutes. They were at our house within before, and within five minutes they were there. 
So that's how come the 911 call. Okay. So you called 911, they showed up, and then he answers the door with a gun and a bottle of liquor. No, he doesn't answer the door that way. The cop's already positioned. Like, he walks outside like that, and the, the cop gets in just position. To, like, he was in shooting position already. It was, I don't know the exact time that the cop took his position, and the, but when I followed Patrick outside the front door, I saw that cop. It, right by the garage, like in co- like cover, like waiting, like in shooting position on his knee. And I said, no, I was screaming, no, don't, don't do this. And then that's when the cop's saying, get back, get back. But Patrick resolutely, he, like he had his mind made up. No one was going to stop him. He walked out so bold into the center of the grass with in the cross position, like sacrificial pose, like... <laughs> So ironic. But with that vodka bottle and the the shotgun and just standing there, like still standing there, not moving. And in the cop's deposition, he says, oh, he was um, making moving toward his shooting stance, which he never did. But of course, it was his word against mine. And he was shot before he was given a chance to be helped. Now, I know. Yeah, the cop was scared and stuff, but they just didn't do the right things leading up to it. Right. So did he ever try to get any help for his depression, any kind of therapy? Have you done any therapy, anything since all this has happened? Well, his work, he had a really good job and he performed really well. He was the health inspector for the county of San Diego. Was He did a very fine job. I thought he was going to be fired because missing work because of depression. They forced him to go to um, meetings, you know, counseling, uh, psychiatrist. He was on Lexapro, and he had recently stopped taking and throwing at the bottle. He said, this shit doesn't work. And when you get off of those drugs right away, that isn't good. And I think that was part of what happened. But yes, he did go because he had a really good job and he didn't want to lose his job. He was almost going toward the retirement stage and he just had to work two more years until he retired. This is not somebody who wanted to die. He just wanted to be heard or he wanted, I don't know. He's so, it was so unpredictable. Mental, mental illness is so hard to predict what people that might do. This is why we have to stop childhood and generational abuse because nothing good comes out of it and it never really goes away. It doesn't. It's like a disease that gets passed down from generation to generation. And that's basically how I opened my book saying that my grandparents and my great grandparents and, and I knew all about them, what happened and it, it went down the line. And because my, my Patrick's father was adopted by my grandfather, that's how come I know him for so long. So, so we were, our families were, well, (laughs) maybe a little too small, but, (laughs) but yeah, our families had that connection of um, relation. Right. So 
I think that's probably what straightened your strengthened your bond is because he was going through some pretty emotional shit and you were there with him kind of along the ride, probably there to be, you know, his friend, his shoulder to lean on, someone to talk to. And in situations like that, that is so important. You have to have somebody and you were that somebody. But so were his friends, but you know who your real friends are when things get tough and the people who are just too busy and they, you know who your real friends are because sometimes he needed his, his friends and a few of them. Yes. But some of them just, Oh, they just had better things to do. And so he had resentment for, from some relationships of friendship. They came and, uh, you know, the good weather friends, they were there when things are good and not there when things are bad. Right. A real friend is there the whole time. He really should have tried to maybe see a counselor or something. I'm sure he had a lot of different feelings, a lot of anger, a lot of abandonment, a lot of, you know, all those things. They have to be worked out. And if not, it's self-destruct mode is like power up. You know what he told me? He said that when he's in the therapy sessions, he's forced to relive all those horrible things. And it didn't make him feel better. It made him feel worse and in despair. And one time, the psychiatrist even fell asleep on him. You know, he, he said, these people, they don't give a shit about me. He just had a very bad, he just did not think that they were helping him. They, he thought opposite that they didn't care. He didn't feel like they cared. Right. Well, um, not but- every therapist is going to be a good fit, obviously. I know it's really hard to talk about like what happened to you, but actually if you stick with it and you work through it, it flips it. And then you start to rewire your brain. So that's where they- it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he gave no up. He said, These people stuck. he didn't try I mean he didn't stick it out like you said he didn't do it he just gave up he said they're just like everyone else they don't give a fuck about me that's basically how he talked quitting is a lot easier than dealing with the hard facts you Mm, know true not a lot of people (laughs) not a lot of people like to uh, look at that but that's the only way you're gonna break break free so this is being turned into a movie, I believe. I yes, heard. it's in the script is fine is um finalized and I signed off on it and um I it's in production, the beginning stages of production right now. And I don't I know mean, what, how that works. <laughs> I just <laughs> yeah. But I hope that um the word gets out to that I feel like Patrick's story can help a lot of people about awareness. Besides that, it's it's a good story because all the dangerous things that he did, he did some crazy things. And um, for instance, standing up on his motorcycle seat, going around a curve at 50 miles an hour. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Because he's, like I said, he did not care if he lived or died almost. And just putting himself in jail on, almost on purpose for DUIs for his father to just pay attention to him. He, his life is full of those things before all this happened. 
I found it quite exciting, actually. He, there was never a dull moment. He was not boring <laughs> like my first husband. <laughs> so, but yeah, that doesn't that sound with boring. No. Sounds like <laughs> so. And we had some really good times. Like I said, there's the good and the bad. So that it's an interesting story with some the element of my ex husband being part of that sheriff situation is very ironic and I don't know just all that made for a good story I thought right I mean that's kind of cool that you're is it based off of your book yes books becoming a movie okay yes it's based on true story so they followed the book pretty well you know, not put everything in it because they did such a great job. It's like almost like they knew him and they were standing right there when it was happening. It was awesome. The just incredible job they did. So no, I can't wait great. to see it um, come to life. Is it going to be like in the movie theater or where's this going to be released at? We don't know yet. Um, my producer seems to think it's um, a streaming movie or a series. Like Netflix or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, I know that your book, Immune to Murder, is on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you got immunetomurder.com. I see, I, I tend to be a very private person. So for me to do this is, like, I wasn't one of those Facebook people that go and talk about my life every day. In fact, the last time I was on Facebook was when I said I, I just wrote this book. So, and that was a year ago, well, gosh, two years ago, maybe a year and a half. And I'm not that kind of person that likes to brag about anything, but I felt like my story was so compelling and that it could help so many other people that I had to do this. I had to do it for my husband who didn't get the help he needed in time. Right gotta seek it and i really hope that you look into talking to someone as well and stick with it because i (laughs) feel some anger in there and you know work out a few things and be good to go (laughs) surfing was my therapy i forced myself to get back in the water and that really got me out of it in the the beginning stages and just so my, my um I guess recommendation for anyone who suffers from depression is to do what you love even when you don't feel like it, especially if you don't feel like it. Make yourself do what you love, and then you will crawl out of that dark space eventually if you stick with what you love and not stay in bed curled up. Get out and do what you love. Yes. Nobody's benefiting from you lying in bed all day. (sighs) Cheating is bad. Don't do that. Nothing good ever comes out of that. No. Nothing good. And everything everything that happens in the dark comes into light eventually. Uh So it does. It and it doesn't come into light in a very good way. Uh no. But I I was totally transparent. I said all my I put all my demons out. I didn't hold anything back and I told the whole truth in my book and and I feel it's authentic deep as my heart can go and for me writing it was therapy and like a I confession heard that a lot. it was a confession basically you want to know what happened this is what happened 
because everyone asked me what happened. So the book says everything going back to the beginning. That is very important for people to know, to understand if they want to know. Right. <laughs> but I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Oh, of course. You keep your head up, keep it up high, and you get a second chance. So make it a good one. Okay. Thank you so much, Tiffany. You are so welcome. All right. And that is going to wrap up this episode. Seriously, you guys, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to me. I think we can all agree that we probably have that one friend that really needs to hear this message. So make sure that you share it with them. If you want to get more of me, hey, make sure that you are subscribed to my YouTube channel. You can also find me on Instagram, TikTok. And I want to know, has one of my episodes made an impact on you in any way? Like, for real, I really want to know. So if so, go to my website, truecrimeconnections.com, or you can email me, podcast at truecrimeconnections.com. I want to talk to you guys. Come talk to me. Let's do the damn thing. (laughs) Keep finding hope and building strength. Until next time.